0: Hey, let me ask you, what is one thing you can do to change your life for the good? Like, like I've, what is one thing that you can do in your life that can make an immediate difference today, tomorrow, and 10 years down the road? I think it depends on who you ask, but I think all of us could probably come up with something. What, you know, you might think, well, if, if I could just maybe get that dream job, that thing I went to school for, if I can do those things that I love, then I'll be able to change my life for good. For some of you, it might say, man, if I could just get that new Tesla, if I could just get that Tesla Series X or Series S, life will be good. For others, you're like, you know, if I could just get back to my high school playing weight, right, then, then things are going to be changed for the good. But what is it for you? What is that thing that you've been holding on to that you think, if I could just do this, then life will change for the good? I was reading this week about this island um, off the coast of Italy in the Mediterranean island of Sardinia, and this is a beautiful place, you've probably seen pictures, you may have a canvas at home hanging of this gorgeous place. But what's interesting about this island, in the island itself, there are um, more people that have lived to be over the age of 100 than anywhere else in the world. On this island, there's, uh, people are six times more likely to live to over 100 years old than mainland Italy, and people are 10 times more likely, likely to live over 100 years old than the U.S., And so, social scientists and psychologists have been trying to figure out why. Like, I think some of us go, I know why. I mean, look at those beaches, right? Like, look at those houses, and just imagine the delicious drinks that they're having right there. Like, that is the good life. But that's not it. Social science and, and psychologists have tried to figure out what it is, and here's what they figured out that there is something going on on this island that is very, very unique, and it's the community. See, on this island, it's a small island, it's about 2,000 kilometers around, people are, 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 they they buy into living here, this is, their identity is found here and their relationships are there. People are are living in relationship together. You know, it's interesting, as social science has thought about these things, and psychologists have really, like, tried to discover what are those things that lead to health, what they've found is really interesting, is it good that we stop eating less saturated fat? Yes. It, that, if you didn't know, that is good, right? Less saturated fat is good. Is it good to get your heart rate up for more than 25 minutes a day? That, that is good. Those things are, are good for you. But th- there is just this concept that there is something that's even better. And I think that's one of those things that we all want in life. We want the best. We want the best things. We want to find out what's better. i got a graph I want to show you. It's kind of hard to read. I apologize. But what social science has tried to discover is, what do you need to stop doing, right? Let's not think about adding yet. Let's just think about stopping. What do you need to stop doing to live longer? And so they look at things like, like, um, you know, you got to stop smoking cigarettes. You got to stop drinking heavily, that kind of stuff. But then they bring into the mix, what are those things that we need to add? And so in here, you've got exercise, and you've got treating hypertension, um, breathing clean air versus polluted air, right? We all want to get out and breathe the fresh air. But notice what they found. What is the that factor that is going to lead you to, um, in this case, they say reduce the chances of dying, but to extend your life, to, to live your best life. They say that the number one factor in living the best life is strong relationships and social support, with social support. And second, social integration, living together with people. This is what they see in the island of Sardinia, and this is what they're saying for us as they discover what is gonna help you live longer, what's gonna help you live your best. It's not smoking less. It's not drinking less. All those those things are good. It's not exercising more. Those things are good. It's relationships. It's being around people that actually extends our life and helps us live life the best. You know, I I think we see that and, and we might nod our head along, but deep down we know it's true. Because I think deep down we know that we were designed, we were ingrained with this desire for relationships. We, we know when, when there's something missing in, in our lives and we, yeah we try to fill it with things but we know that if we're lacking relationships like we can feel it deep inside of us it's something that like it's inside of our bone marrow that we know it exists but let's be honest about it we're not very good at relationships and we're not very good at pursuing this idea of social construct of living community because sometimes it just Seems a little awkward, and sometimes it seems a little weird, and sometimes it just gets a a little bit uncomfortable. But there's been so many studies that have shown that we live in an age where people are more disconnected than ever, and I think we all know that's true. The the HRSA um, did a study uh, recently, and they found that two out of five Americans, so 40% of Americans, report feeling a deep emotional disconnect from other people, like deeply disconnected in relationships. Two out of five, 40% of people and then one out of five, 20%, say that they feel just totally alone and socially isolated. Those are big numbers. You might say, well, that's 20%. That's 40%. Those are the people that answered, right? Like, let's be honest. Like, if you got that questionnaire, and even if they say your name's not on it, but give me your email address, right, you're going to be like, yeah, I don't know about that. See, I think those numbers are even higher. There's just this reality, right, that, that people are, are hungry for relationship and that people are lonely. And I think one of the reasons is we live in a world and a culture with thin relationships. You got a thousand Facebook friends, but you don't have anybody that you're spending time with through the week. Now, I'm not talking to you, I'm just talking to us, just in general. Tons of Facebook friends, but yet we're just not, we don't just feel connected. And I think it's because a lot of us, we just have these thin relationships. We're hungry for companionship and we're lonely. How many of you guys remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? You guys remember Castaway? Remember that scene? So he's trying to light the fire, and he, like, he gets mad. He cuts his hand, and he slaps the volleyball. You guys remember that? You guys remember? And what, what what did he instantly find? A friend, right? Wilson. And Wilson was his buddy. And Wilson went everywhere with Tom Hanks. And there's that scene at the very end. You guys remember? Have you seen the movie? Where Tom Hanks, is he like fashions this life raft, and he's going to get out. He's got all kinds of stuff fashioned on the, the posts, and he's out, and then One of the posts, like, starts to fall, and Wilson falls off. And do you just, like, remember the panic? Like, he was willing to, like, jump off the life raft to save his volleyball, right? (laughs) It's just ridiculous. But it gets to the heart uh, of man that we have been designed for relationships and for companionship that we would even, when we don't have it, we can even find it in a volleyball or, you know, if your kid's best, you know... You know, what do they call that when you have your best friend, but, you know, it's invisible, right? Your invisible best friend. You know, it's just like we just need people in our lives. And so there's something designed within us. And the reality is what we, what we don't realize is if we don't have relationships, if we are living isolated and lonely, it's actually really bad on your health. So the National Institute of Health did a study, and they found this. This is, this is interesting. They said that research links social isolation and loneliness to high blood pressure heart disease, obesity, weakened immune system, anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, and Alzheimer's. And there's a guy named Steve Cole. And Steve Cole is the director of social genomics at UCLA. And that's what he says. This is interesting. He says that loneliness acts as a fertilizer for other diseases. The biology of loneliness can accelerate the buildup of plaque in the arteries, help cancer cells grow and spread, and promote inflammation in the brain, leading to Alzheimer's. Now, that's interesting. That's just loneliness just being socially disconnected. And so what we're seeing is that being lonely can actually kill you and decline your health. So here's the question. How do we combat this? How do we change this? How do we fix this? What if I told you that the way to solve this problem was not moving to some magic island off the coast of the Mediterranean, but the way to solve this problem for many of you is already right in front of you? This is what Genesis 2 is going to talk about today. So grab your Bibles, Genesis 2, verse 18. This is what Genesis 2 is going to teach us. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis 2, we see that God really kind of pivots from uh, the the story of creation that we see that he gives us in seven days to a narrative where he begins to fill in what was going on in creation. So last week, we dove in and we saw that God is giving us this picture of the way the world is meant to be, and he shows us the picture of how he created Adam, the very first man. He he, he breathed life into Adam's lungs, and he creates the, the garden in Eden, and he puts Adam in the garden, and he gives Adam purpose in his work and says, Adam, I want you to take care of what I've created. And so Genesis 2, God has really just given us this picture of the way he created the world to be. How, how many of you guys like puzzles? Any puzzlers? A bunch of you guys like puzzles? How many of you have been brave enough to do the 1,000-piece puzzles? Okay, a lot of you. 2,000? Anybody? 5,000? Do they even make more than 2,000? So we like puzzles at my house, but we like the 25-piece puzzles. <laughs> Me and the girls, you know, we just set the edges, and man, we're good. Yeah, we're 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 good. But, you know, when you go to the store, let's say you're at Target, right, or you're at, the, you're at the game store, and you go and you find a puzzle, what do you do first? What's the first thing you do? You look at the picture, right? You look at the picture, and you see it's pretty, and it's all, you know, depending on what you get, like Star Wars, like the Millennium Falcon, or, or whatever it is. But you look at it, and you're like, man, that's what it should look like. And then when you build it, you know, it seems like you're always, like, missing a piece, right? The dog got it, and it's in the dog bowl, and it just never fits right, or there's always a little gap, right? It just drives you crazy. But that was the picture of the puzzle, the way it was meant to be. And Genesis 2 is the picture of the way that God created this puzzle of life to be. So we look at Genesis 2, we see the, as we said last week, the Lego box. We see the puzzle box. We see the way that God created everything to be, and it gives us his purpose in creation, and it helps direct us and give us a pattern for life. And so last week we saw that with Adam, and this week we're going to see him continue to reveal his plan for creation. But it's interesting. If you've been following along, Genesis 1, 1 So Genesis two three, God is creating all these things and He's calling them good, right? So He creates He creates the light. He says the light is good. He creates the land and the sky, and He says it's good. He creates mankind. He creates you and me. He says it's very good. But something changes. There's this stunning shift that happens in verse eighteen. Notice what happens. Verse eighteen. God's made Adam. God's made uh, the garden. God's given Adam a job. And then in verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, it is not what? Good. good. Huh? It's been good. It's been good. It's, good. it's been good. But now it's not good. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, I want you to notice. N- notice this. So it isn't like God is building the puzzle, and he realizes he's missing a piece. Like, God isn't caught off guard. God isn't like, oh, where, where's that piece at? You know, I, oh, it's over there. Yeah, it's in the dog bowl. God isn't just discovering that things aren't good. God is telling Adam and us that it isn't good. See, see God is like, oh, I messed up. And also notice, God doesn't check in with Adam either. He's not like, hey, Adam, how's it going, man? You having a good time with those orangutans and those zebras? Like, how's the food? Like, he's not doing that. Instead, God is telling Adam, hey, something's not right. Because he wants Adam to see you wants know, Adam to, to understand that he has a need. Because often in life, let's be honest, you don't know what you don't know. Like when I was a kid, I hated Brussels sprouts. Just hated them. Right? You ask me, like, what's the thing you hate the worst in, in, the, in life? Is it the, the Raiders? No, I don't like the Raiders. But I really don't like Brussels sprouts. Like, that's the thing. But then I discovered if you coat Brussels sprouts in salt, garlic, and brown sugar, oh, my gosh, they're like milk duds. I just popped those babies, right? <laughs> Like, you want some Milk Duds to watch your movie? No, give me some brown sugared Brussels sprouts. I'm all over it. You don't know what you don't know. Now, you also need to know that that's not very healthy for you. So probably, you know, some saturated fat in there. So stay away. Stay away from that saturated fat. But it's this idea. You don't know what you don't know. And Adam doesn't know. Like, God creates Adam and puts his, you know, breath in his lungs. We said last week, Adam looks, and there's beautiful trees, and there's all these great things to eat. And I'm sure Adam's like, whoa, this is amazing. And he sees all these lions and tigers and bears. He's like, oh, my, this is amazing. And so all of a sudden, Adam's feeling good, and God has to help Adam see that something is missing. And so Adam is going to reveal this beautiful truth. And I want you to see something, too. God knew Adam was where Adam knew it. And this is a reminder. God doesn't miss the details. And so if you walk in here today, and you're in a season of loneliness, and you're in a season where you feel disconnected and you feel isolated, God knows. He knew before you did. Notice what God does. God is teaching Adam to appreciate God's solution. Look here, verse 18 again. So then the Lord God looks at Adam. He says to Adam, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 19, Now, out of every, Now out of the ground uh, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, now sometimes we read this and we go... Is God getting out of order? Because I felt like when we were reading Genesis 1, day 6, God made the animals first. Day 5, he made the birds. Now he's making man at the end of day 6. But then we get to Genesis chapter 2, and God creates Adam, and then does he create the animals? Context. I don't think God is saying when. I think, Again, God is telling us how. God is saying that I made the animals just like I made Adam from the dust of the ground. Remember, we're all made of stardust. So God is Is telling he's helping Adam see something here. He's helping Adam see his need for relationship. So he's he's doing it kind of disguising in a way where he's bringing the animals to Adam and Adam's naming these animals. And I think which fits though with the dominion that God gives mankind in Genesis chapter one verses twenty six to twenty eight, where God says, "Hey, I want you to have dominion over what I've created." And so Adam, imagine Adam, he's sitting here and he's at his table or whatever, you know, and and these animals are God's bringing these animals by, and Adam's starting to name. These animals, and, and I think sometimes you, like, you wonder, like, well, how long did that take? Probably a long time, right? I'm like 40 hours a week for how many weeks? A long time. There's a lot of animals. Did God name them all? Or did Adam name them all? Well, it says that Adam named all the animals. So we have to imagine he did. But again, this was his job. Naming the animals was his job. And so he brings these animals to him, an animal, and God brings them to Adam, and Adam begins naming them. And this is what's interesting about God's call in our life and our purpose, being created in his image. He gives us dominion over his creation. You guys have that same responsibility. It's like when you have kids, and you name your kids, right? Like last week, we talked about Clay or Dusty. I think those are still pretty good names, right? Skip Moon Unit, but Clay and Dusty are pretty good. But I think we have dominion over what we can name. It's like when you get a new dog, right? Like, how many of you get a new dog, and you immediately know what the name is? Like, none of you. You get a new dog, and you get on websites, and you ask friends, and you spend forever looking for a new name. And then you come up with something amazing, like Notorious DOG, right? (laughs) You had dominion, right? I named that puppy. Or you get a cat, right? like, what should we name this cat? You know? Should we name it Snowball or... Fluffier. How about Cindy Clawford? I like Cindy Clawford. <laughs> That's a good one. But this is the dominion we have, and God gives us the authority to name, right? So Adam here is naming all these animals. But imagine there's this moment where Adam is naming these animals, but he realizes that something is missing. Because for every lion, there's a lioness. And for every water buffalo, there's a water buffaloess. And I'm sure he's, like, having a good time because he sees a jaguar, and he's like, can I ride in that? Like, that's just amazing. But there's a point where he's like, man, something is missing, right? Like, I, I know that something is missing. And so God is bringing him along to help him to see. Because I think Adam goes, everybody else has a helper. Everybody else has a companion or a partner except me. So Adam, I think, realizes this. Now, it's interesting. I want, I want to just hit pause for a second. This word for helper that we see in Genesis chapter 2, sometimes we get like this inferior picture of helper, like Adam doesn't have a helper. That's not what that word means. Actually, 85% of the time we read the word helper in the book of Genesis, it's used for God. God is our helper. God is is the one walking alongside us. God is the one who who is helping us. And so, so when we see helper here, this is the picture we should have. Not the, the, the office intern who's getting copies or the, the high school kid getting carts at Target. Like, that's not what God means by helper. God is talking about something bigger and better and more beautiful. He's talking about something or, or, or this deep, intimate companionship. And what God is showing us here is a picture that, that human flourishing comes through companionship and relationships. So notice what God does. How does God solve Adam's need? Adam sees now, "Wow, I need a helper, I need a companion. What does God do? Well, notice verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place in flesh. Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So Adam sees he he doesn't have anybody to, to do life with, and God helps him see his problem, and then God probably... Provides the solution, and he creates Eve, his companion, his partner. He he creates Eve, and, and notice how he does it. God says he takes a rib from Adam, and he uses that to fashion Eve together. Now I don't know about you, but anytime I read the word rib, I get hungry. But I don't. I, it's kind of wrong, like when you read it in this context. But I I, I, I want to share and to, teaser for the podcast this week. The word rib that we see here actually means side. And so when, when we see God's taking a rib from Adam to make Eve, what, what we really are seeing is that God is, is creating Eve out of a part of Adam. So it's this idea that God takes one to make two, but then you're going to see later He brings those two back together to one. And it's this beautiful picture of companionship and intimacy and relationship. And so God doesn't go back to the dust to make Eve. He takes what He've already started in Adam and makes Eve. And it's this, this beautiful compliment. It's this beautiful, this beautiful um, uh, piece that, that Adam was missing. And so God creates this amazing, beautiful woman. But this was God's plan from the beginning. He just waited so Adam could understand. And I think there's a reality in this for us, guys, is that sometimes we want something in our life, and we are praying for something, and we're like, God, when are you going to deliver? And God is just saying, hey, I'm at work trying to help you see what your real need is trying to help you see that I'm going to provide you what you need. But we're not ready for it yet. Sometimes we have to work our way through life before we realize what it is we truly need. So I think God is teaching us this. But so imagine Adam. Adam's been naming for hours, weeks, months, animals. And all of a sudden, he wakes up, and there's this beautiful woman, Eve, right in front of Adam. And Adam's eyes are opened. Fellas, it's a lot like like when you were in middle school or high school and you, you know, before you thought girls had cooties, right? And all you cared about was like baseball and football and your BMX bike. But then you realize one day your eyes are open and you realize Carrie from algebra class likes you too. You guys remember that? And all of a sudden, all you want to do is sit at home and talk on your mom's cordless phone. You guys remember cordless phones? And spend hours and your sister would get on the phone and you'd hear her breathing. And you'd be like, get off the phone, I'm talking to Carrie. This is way too personal of an example. <laughs> it's way too accurate to me, not true. But, so, but we do that, right? And all of a sudden, we're passing notes in the hallways, and our buddies are like, hey, you guys want to go play home run derby after school? You're like, no. Yeah, me and Carrie are going to talk after school. And, you guys been there? Yeah, you have. Let's not lie. You guys have been there. This is kind of what happens here. Adam's like, oh, man, I have this need. He realizes, eyes are open. He's like, oh, my gosh. And, and notice what he says. Look, look what, Adam, what Adam says in, in verse 23. He has totally a Tom Cruise Oprah couch-jumping moment. In verse 23, he says, he says, this is at last the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And he was just excited because his eyes were opened and he realized like God had just done something amazing and this is all that mattered right now. But I think right here, Right here in Genesis chapter two, in verse 23, 24 and 25, God is going to show us that what we are designed for is just not to, to rule over God's creation, but we are designed for deep, intimate relationships and companionship. Like this is what we need. This is what they're finding out as they study social science. This is what the island of our Sardinia is teaching us. It's what God said 3,500 years ago in Genesis chapter two, is that we are created for this deep, intimate relationship. And what we see, the picture that God gives us for this is marriage. He's right here in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We're going to see the first wedding, and we're going to see the first marriage. Now, I realize in this room, I'm tuning in online, that that, um, a lot of you are married, but many of you are not. And I realize that uh, many of us in this room are in just different places along the spectrum. Some of us are are single right now, hoping to, to be married. Some, some of us are, are, are single right now and ha- have, have just walked different journeys. Some of us in this room ha- have had our hearts broken. Some of us in this room have walked through really difficult marriages. And some of us in this room have lost the loves of our life. And I want you to know, wherever you are in this room, we love you so much. We are here for you. We are always uh, available to talk and, and to, walk in, to, to walk through these situations. But I think God in Genesis 2 gives us the picture of how he created the world to be, and he shows us marriage because he wants to teach us something very important. And if you're single right now, uh, maybe one day you will get married. Or or right now, if you're not married, you have married friends that that, that may be coming to you for advice or that God wants to use you to speak into their life and to give them wisdom and advice. Because, again, we're looking back at the box of the puzzle and seeing how God created the world to be. So I think in this, there's something that all of us can take away when it comes to this idea of marriage. Because God wants to use all of us. Because again, it takes a village. It takes a community. We're here to walk together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so, so notice what Jesus or what God tells us here in verse 24 and 25 about the very first marriage. Notice, here's what he says. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So we see right here, Genesis 2, just two verses, really just one verse. God is showing us his design for marriage. And there's so much we can unpack from from just this one verse. But he's saying that he designed the the, the world to work in a certain way. And we look back to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, where God gives this blessing over mankind. Remember, God only blesses three things in creation. He blesses animals to be fruitful and multiply. He blesses the seventh day for us to rest, because that's life-giving. But also he blesses mankind. And right here, verses 27 and 28, he blesses mankind. He says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And what we're seeing here is is how God fills in the details of how we become fruitful and multiply and have the intimacy we were created and we crave for, and it's through the relationship of marriage. Now, you can experience companionship through many relationships and great friendships, but I just want us to see that... That while we have many different experiences in our lives, many good, many hard, many bad, let's look back to God's picture of the way it was meant to be because as we pursue that together, we can recapture the beauty of what God created us for. But here's a question. If God's initial, initial design was, was this intimate relationship of marriage, then why is marriage so hard? If God's immediate or God's initial design for what was this beautiful picture of oneness, then why, not just is marriage so hard, why do so many marriages struggle? And I wonder, could it be because we have the wrong idea of marriage? You know, you ever ask your kids something, like something serious, and just wait for their answer? I think sometimes kids just give us the best reflection of sometimes how we get the wrong. Uh, misconceptions. So I want to share with you guys a couple of views of kids about marriage. So um, let me show you this first one. So what is the idea of love? Well, notice what little Bobby says. He says, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. (laughs) Bobby's a little ladies' man. Or, or how about this? How do you know who the right person to get married is? Well, listen to what Alan has to say. you got to find someone who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should, keep, she should like that you like sports and should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Don't invite Alan to your Super Bowl party. Or, 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 or notice what, what Lynette says. She says, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Lynette, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Or how about, how old should you be when you get married? Well, Judy gives us some insight. 84, because at that age, you don't have to work anymore, and you can spend all of your time loving each other in your bedroom. <laughs> I Think she's figured out what nap time means. So we, as, as a culture, have a lot of opinions about marriage. We, we have a lot of opinions about marriage. And we see it not just in kids, but we have it. All of us have lots of opinions about marriage, and I wonder if maybe the reason that we're seeing the culture we have is because of our opinions about marriage to have uh, imposed on what God's opinion of marriage is. In 1950, 80% of U.S. households were married. In 2020, only 49%. And so in 70, 70 years, that's a huge drop. And I think a lot of people are asking the question, why do I need to get married? What is marriage? Does it even matter? Marriage is hard, so why even try? And again, I think it's because we've imposed some of our own views onto God's picture of marriage in the beginning. Because if you think about the way we live life, we live in a very consumeristic culture, consumer-driven culture. It drives everything we do, right? Consumerism drives what jobs we work at. It drives what shows we watch. It drives what, car, you know, it, what cars we drive. All of those things are driven by what do I like and what's going to make me happy. And so when we impose that over God's view of marriage, marriage becomes this consumeristic thing. Marriage becomes this this thing where it's all about you. And see, I think that's led to a lot of misconceptions about marriage. So I just want to spend a few minutes kind of looking at Genesis 2.24, and let's just debunk a couple of misconceptions about marriage. And the the first one is this. The first misconception I think as a culture we have about marriage is that marriage is an agreement. Like, a lot of people approach marriage thinking that marriage is an agreement. And I think it's a misconception. Because if you think about an agreement, what is an agreement? What is an agreement? an agreement is a contract or, or an agreement between you and somebody else so you come and paint my house and i'm going to pay you do a good job and i'm going to take i'm going to pay your invoice like, like this is the idea of an agreement but it's the problem with, with that is they're all built on these uh, these provisions right you got to do this you got to do that and then i'll do my part and if you base marriage on that it's going to fall apart it's always going to fall apart because if you base a marriage and you say, well, I will commit to you as long as you make enough money. I will commit to you as, as long as you buy the things I, I want. I will commit to you as long as you keep a good head of hair. I will commit to you as long as you fill in the blank, right? Like you can fill in the blank. I will commit to you as long as you make me happy. It's always going to fall apart. See, marriage can't be an agreement. But I'll tell you what marriage is. When we look at Genesis 2.24, we see that marriage is a covenant. See, the difference is an agreement is made by two people. A covenant or a contract is made by two people. A covenant is made between you, your spouse, and God. And it's a promise. It's bigger than an agreement. It's a promise. It's not based on provisions. It's based on promises. Yesterday, I had the privilege of leading an amazing fam- or, uh, leading the ceremony for one of our amazing families here at Forefront. And beautiful venue. Uh, the bride looked beautiful. The groom, the groom had, looked great, just tucked up. And huge family. It was amazing. It was a great time. But there was this moment where we're standing in front of all their family and friends. And we're standing right there. And they're getting ready to make these vows, to take these vows. And they're making these promises. And I made sure to let them know, those promises you're making right now, they're not just in the eyes of these families and friends who are here to hold you accountable. But they're in the eyes of God. Like when we say for better or for poor, for, for in sickness and death, until death do us part, like that's a promise. That, that's not. A, well, I, I pro, You know, I, I will love you till death do us part if you do this. No, no, it's a promise we're making in front of God. In front of God, and that's why marriage is such a big deal. Because you get married, you're just not making a, a little commitment. You're making a huge commitment. You're actually stepping into a covenant Contracts based on feelings, covenant on commitment, contract on performance, covenant on promise. Look back at verse 24. Notice what, what we see. It says this, that therefore a man shall what? Leave his father and his mother, and what? Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one. If you have an NIV Bible, you see leave and cleave, which is kind of fun to say, right? Say that. Leave and cleave. So leave and cleave. It's this idea that, like, I'm stepping into this new covenant relationship that's bigger than me. Now, this would have been really big to hear. So imagine you're an ancient Near East reader. You grew up in in Egypt, and you are an Israelite, and and you're now in the wilderness, and God is telling you all about how life works best. In ancient Near East cultures, we see that, that your tribe was what was most important to you. Like, your tribe, your family, who you were, your last name, what you guys do, this was most important. And marriage, you know, it served its purpose. But God, right here from the very beginning, is saying you need to get rid of that thinking. That is a misconception. Marriage becomes this new family for you. Now, it doesn't mean you never talk to your family again, but it does mean that you step out of what was your norms and the way you lived your life, and now you develop this new, beautiful thing with your spouse. And it's a oneness. It's a oneness that you come together to... Experience this idea of cleave means that you're now glued together. Remember, Eve, God created Eve from Adam, and now He's saying that Adam, the two of you are now one, one family, one marriage, one flesh. It's this idea that it's no longer me's, but it's now we's. Right, one family, one bed, one budget, total access, total total vulnerability. In Matthew 19, one of the um, Jesus is teaching, and a crowd comes up to him, and one of the teachers comes up and says, hey, Jesus, he's asking about marriage and all these things, and what does Jesus say? Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24, and he says, what God joins together, leave and cleave, let no man separate. And he's saying that God brings us together as one. It's not a contract. It is a covenant, and it's something that God keeps. And when Paul talks about marriage, Paul references Genesis 2.24 also. So Genesis 2.24, in some old-school antiquated thinking, this is what God says is best. And don't forget, Paul and Jesus were both single. And so you're talking about this pattern for life and creation that God has given us. So marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenant. Second misconception is this. I will have a great marriage if I can find the right person. You guys have probably heard that before. We've probably all said it, right? Like, I'll have a great marriage if I can find the right person. But see, this is a misconception. And here's how you know why. We live right now in the age of the dating app. So if this was true, theoretically, all you have to do is keep swiping until you found the right person. And then life's going to be great, right? Oh, man, their profile says they like long walks on the beach and love lasagna. I love those things too, right? Like, why isn't this going to work out? But yet, we've all experienced it. On the surface, it might seem great, but there's so many things below. When we're looking for the right person, we're always going to be disappointed because nobody's perfect. Okay, moment of honesty, real honesty. This is a safe place. How many of you guys watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? A couple of y'all are like, me? Okay, fellas, how many of you watch it with your ladies? Be honest. Okay, you guys are like, you know, now, I'll be honest, Courtney talks me into it sometimes, and you know, I repent really quickly after I do it. But just think about the bachelor, okay? Like, ladies, bachelorette, guys, bachelor. So in this case, I don't even know how many people it is. 15, 20 people are paraded in front of you, and you get to pick which one's your favorite. Why, surely that would work, right? Like, ooh, you're the right one. But how many of those actually work? Like, how many. Next season of The Bachelor is the last season's bachelor who's there with another bachelor or another bachelorette. And they're, they've broken up already. Some of you are like, I know, it's just so hard. It's just so heartbreaking. The, the <laughs> thing is, it doesn't work and there's a reason for it because you can't find the right person. See, the truth is, while you can't find the right person, you have a great marriage when you become the right person. It's not about finding the right person to be married. It's about becoming the right person. Adam didn't pick Eve out of a group of people. Eve didn't pick Adam out of a, a group of people. No, they, they came together. And, but they focused on being the right person. I think this is what God is saying. We need to leave and we need to cleave. Because if we're always looking for Mr. and Mrs. Right, then we're going to be like Jerry Seinfeld and breaking up with everybody for any reason at all. Some pretty good, funny reasons. But still, for any reason at all. But when you focus on becoming the right person, then God will use that and God will bless that. One, one of the things... That I think is amazing about when you look at how Christianity spread through the Roman Empire, and I've hit on this before, is when you look at how Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, it wasn't because of the dynamic preaching of pastors. And it wasn't because of music, right? It wasn't, you know, Elevation didn't have a hit new album that just everybody loved. It was marriage. Because in Roman culture, there was this disconnect when it came to marriage. In Roman culture, marriage served a purpose. Husbands, their wife was for having kids, but everything else, they had somebody else. Wives hated their husbands. But when the Bible infiltrates people's lives and Jesus changes people's hearts, all of a sudden, people start seeing that marriage is actually meant to be a oneness relationship. And people started living into that, but they didn't wait for their spouse to get it right. They became the right person. And it changed culture. People were intrigued by Christianity because they saw the way people were married and the way they lived out their relationships. Their marriages became the light of Jesus. And I think the same thing is true for you and me, living in the culture that we live in today in America in 2022. Does God want to use preaching and and music and, and churches and all these things? Absolutely. But does God want to use your marriage to shine the light of Jesus? Absolutely, He does. But that means to make a marriage be great. And for God to use us the right way, we have to become the right person ourselves. Third misconception, our last one, I promise. Third misconception, marriage is meant to make me happy. I think a lot of us have thought this, right? Well, I just want my marriage to be happy. And God wants your marriage to be happy too. But I think when the basis of our marriage is happiness, then we miss God's plan. I heard a story this week about a guy who um, went to visit a a family member and it was a mental health hospital and he had a family member in there and it was really a sad thing. And so he's walking down the hallway and he goes by a door of a room and he hears this guy like saying, Diane, Diane, Diane. And he looks at the doctor and he's like, what's going on there? He's like, well, that's the guy that got his heart broke by Diane. He's like, oh, that's so sad. He went by the next room and there's another guy and he was banging his head on the wall saying, Diane, Diane, Diane. And he's like, well, what's wrong with that guy? He's like, well, that's the guy that actually married Diane. <laughs> we can never base marriage on my desire to be happy because the other person is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something that ends up in the valleys and peaks of life causing us to wonder, well, they're not making me happy enough. So I think that, that that's just the problem. So I wonder, what if God didn't design marriage to make you happy? But what if God designed marriage to make you holy? What if God had a bigger purpose in marriage? Does God want you to be happy? For sure. Do you want to be happy in your marriage? No doubt. But what if God's got a bigger purpose for marriage than just making you happy? But he wants to use the picture of marriage to make you holy. Notice what Tim Keller says. This, Tim Keller says, he's given a definition of marriage. He says this, according to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and, mature and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. What Tim Keller is saying is that, that God wants to use marriage to, to shape us into living more like Jesus. When you look at the Bible and you look at what the Bible has to say, especially when you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul's talking about marriage, you see this picture where where God is saying that marriage, husband and wife, is like Jesus and the church. And we see this term over and over in the Bible where the church is the bride of Christ. Now, I know some of you fellas, you might not like being called the bride of Christ, but you ladies, sometimes you have to deal with being called sons of God. So we all have to kind of wrestle with the, the language a little bit. But you get the idea. See, there's this picture that as The husband is to be like Jesus was to the church to his wife. And so the husband is to sacrificially give his life for his wife, to sacrificially love and lead his wife. And then just like the the, the wife is to be like the church, Jesus gave his life for the church and we respond in love, honor, and respect and follow Jesus. The picture we see in the Bible of marriage is that the husband gives his wife for for his wife and his wife responds with love, honor, and respect. And that picture is meant to show us that Jesus is always pursuing us, that Jesus is always coming after us. And just like following Jesus helps reveal our our, our sin and helps reveal the times we fall short, marriage helps reveal our own sinfulness when we mess up. And God uses that to shape us and form us more into the picture of Jesus so we can live more like Jesus. I love how my pastor back home in Missouri would say it. Keith Simon would say, marriage is designed to point us to Jesus, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So here's a question for you as we wrap up. I'm going to invite the worship team forward. Here's the question. How is God using your marriage, how, or, or, or if you're not married, how is God using the marriage of a friend or a family member to show you Jesus, to show you the love of Christ, that he came and he gave his life for you so that we can have life? See, Jesus wants your life to look more and more like his. And marriage and and intimacy and and companionship is one of the ways that he shapes us. Last summer, I shared this with some of you before, but my grandpa, um, almost 92 years old, the Lord called him home. And he and my grandma, she just turned 92 last summer as well. They have been married. They just celebrated their 71st wedding anniversary before he passed away. 71 years. 71 years. They got married when they were, when they were 20 and uh, 21, I guess. And, and what's funny is that they met one day in February. They dated for two weeks and they got engaged in, in March. And then they got married in April and just said, hey, let's go, right? <laughs> let's make this happen. And we're married for 71 years. You know, there's a recent Harvard study that came out that said that people who... who um, who live in a happy marriage, a good marriage, end up living longer than people that don't. And I see that in my grandparents, like their marriage drove them. And I asked my grandma. I called her this week and said, "Grandma, we're preaching on marriage this week. What was your key ingredient? What was your secret to success in 71 years?" And and here's what she said. She said the key ingredient to 71 years was keeping God at the center. She said this. She said we went to church together. We prayed together. We served Jesus together. We told people about Jesus together. And then here's her quote that she said. She said, how do we make this work? She said, love unconditionally, just like God. Keep on loving. Love them no matter what. That is what Jesus gives us, and that's how I loved my husband. See, my grandma was focused on being the right person, and God used that, and God blessed that. And it created an incredible legacy for me and my family. And I think many of you have examples in your life of people that set that example, that created that legacy for you. And so I think what what Jesus wants us to see in this idea of marriage is in Genesis chapter 2 that God has a plan for your life. And whether you're married or you're single or you've walked through a hard marriage before, God wants you to know that he is with you, that God wants to shape you, that God wants to, to move you so you can become the person that you were created to be And he's showing us Genesis 2 to motivate us to follow him and pursue him with all of our hearts. And so my challenge for us this week is as we go from here, wherever we are, how is God stirring inside of you? How is God pointing you to Jesus? And how does God want to use you in your marriage or your friendships to show others Jesus too?